Okay, well, uh, come on back and uh, gather up your uh, Bible and turn with me to Jonah chapter 2. That's where we're going to go, Jonah chapter 2. And what I'm trying to do for you is when we get to the end of the uh, prophets, I'm trying to get us to the point that we can distinguish the minor prophets. Oh, by the way, let me say this. I have a praise report. I can see. (laughs) So I won't have to take my glasses off anymore. And uh, I can see my notes in my Bible. So uh, it's been about seven months since I've been able to do that. So (laughs) what a blessing it is to read. I just take them off naturally now when I get a text or something on my phone, expecting that I can't see, but I can see. And the other thing I wanted to tell you was, um, just keep praying for our trip to Hungary. There are so many amazing, amazing, amazing things that the Lord's doing just in the uh, preparation phase of uh, getting together uh, our trip and our itinerary that it's almost too hard to believe. If you weren't a Christian, I'd say you wouldn't believe it, but uh, someday I'll tell you about that as well. So, uh, but things are going great and um, uh, the Lord is uh, opening up awesome opportunities to serve uh, the people of uh, Budapest, Hungary, and uh, also Ukraine. So uh, we're gonna leave on the 17th of June and come back the 25th. And if you'd like to pray for us, uh, keep us in your prayers, jot that down. Well, here's the thing that I wanted to tell you about um, our book tonight, uh, Joel, or excuse me, Jonah. Uh, It's this. Last week, I told you that in this book, there's really no prophesying. That's how you can distinguish this book. There's really no prophecy. But I didn't tell you something last week, and I did it on purpose because I wanted to tell you this week. Jonah is a prophet, and he appears in the Bible, and let me show you where, in 2 Kings chapter 14. In 2 Kings chapter 14, he is in there, and uh, he's there right around the verse 25 when it says, this. Talking about the king, Jeroboam II of Israel, listen to this, verse 25. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of God, or the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, second kings, folks, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath, Hefer. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is, uh, well, let me finish out here. Verse 26, for the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now, I want you to pay really close attention right here, because if you don't get this, you might not get the rest of what we're going to talk about tonight. In around 790 BC, this happened, what I just read to you. And apparently, Jonah, now watch, he's from northern Israel. He's from four miles north of Nazareth. He's in the Galilee area. That's what Gath 
Hafer, or that's the city of Gath Hafer, is up north in Galilee. Everybody tracking with me? And apparently this Jonah, same Jonah, the son of Amittai, had access to the king. And in this particular case, he was in and out prophesying to a king who wasn't very good, by the way, about how Israel's borders were going to be enlarged. So just let me ask you something. Would the king be happy with the prophet or not happy with the prophet who came and delivered a message that the kingdom was going to be enlarged? He would be happy with this prophet. So somehow, some way, this prophet had the ins to the royal court, to the kings. Now flip back to Jonah. The story starts to make even more sense. Remember last week, one of the themes that we talked about in Jonah was this, that God, when you run away from his will for your life, will do everything in his power to interrupt your course. And when you do run away from the Lord, forget saying things like this. You got to really watch saying things like this. When there's two different courses that you can take, watch saying, oh, but there was such an open door to do this one. And it just seems so easy. Because the enemy of your soul and your flesh always want to take you the easy route. Here, Jonah went down, watch this, from Samaria all the way to Joppa near Tel Aviv. All the way down on the coast, running away from Nineveh where God had called him to. God had called him and he ran straight to Joppa. And then look, lo and behold, there was a ship available. And oh, he just happened to have the money. It's like our modern day Christians saying, oh, all the open doors were there. Yeah, well, Satan opens doors too, folks. And he makes it easy and beautiful and picturesque. And a lot of times, the way in which we are to go with the Lord is the difficult way. Nineveh, barbaric, historically barbaric. They treated enemies as bad as anybody in the history of kingdoms. They skinned people alive that were enemies. You know they paraded them with hooks through their mouths or through their noses, naked, through the streets. I mean, these were a brutal, brutal people, and he grew up knowing that. And yet, he had been called initially in his lifetime to go into the court to an evil king, and he might have been thinking the first time, Lord, what are you going to tell me to tell this guy? And the Lord tells him, tell him his borders are going to be enlarged. He must have went, whew, thank the Lord. But now, about 30 years later, the Lord says this to Jonah, arise, arise, Jonah, and go to, can you imagine on the edge of his seat, arise, go to Hawaii, arise, go to Ohio, no, I'm kidding, but um, uh, arise, here, I want you to go to Nineveh. This would be the equivalent, folks, of living in the Middle East and the Lord calling you to go witness to ISIS. That's what this would be. 
And I know, I think it, I, I, he must have been saying in his heart, we don't get all the reasons why he chose to decline, but we do get the ultimate reason in chapter four. We'll go over that. But one of the things he must have been thinking was this, Lord, you've called me to be a political insider prophet. I mean, come on, 30 years ago, you marched me right into the King Jeroboam and I told him all these good news and it was great. We had a great time. Lord, come on. What are we doing? Nineveh? I hate those people. They're so cruel and barbaric and there's no way I'm going. In fact, he prays in the last chapter in verse two, he tells us why he wouldn't go. He wouldn't go because verse two, chapter four, he prayed to the Lord and said, ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish for that I, for I know that you are a gracious, gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Lord, I know you're going to save them and I don't want you to. That's what Jonah was saying. Lord, you've called me to a ministry where I go into the courts of kings, and now you're calling me to go somewhere that's big and bad and dangerous and uncomfortable, and I don't know what to do. I'm not doing it. And he walks down from Galilee as he's willfully made the choice not to do the revealed will of God in his life, and he walks down and he gets to this little port city and he must have said, whoa, I asked for about five minutes and there's a ship. Maybe the Lord really wasn't calling me to do this. Oh, and I had the money. I paid the fare. Not only does he go down in direction, but you know the rest of the story. He keeps going down and that's the way it is when you flee from the will and presence of the Lord. You keep going down. He went down in the ship. He went so far down that he just stuck his head into the sand, so to speak, and he slept. And he went to sleep. We also learned last week that a sin that you're doing doesn't just impact you. If you think it does, you're wrong. The sin of pornography it, um, breaks up families and marriages and homes. And the sin of uh, being drunk breaks up families and homes and destroys lives. And all of these things, when we run away, and we said, remember when Achan took some treasures and buried them under his tent? Israel, all of Israel paid for it because they got defeated at Ai in Joshua chapter 7. And David, we said, numbered the people when God told him not to take a census. And 70,000 people died in 2 Samuel 24. You remember this. But there's one thing that maybe I should have said that I didn't say last week that leads us into chapter two is that, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I like sports. And I've both participated and been a coach. And there's this thing in sports, you know this, it's called a timeout. <laughs> I think what a timeout is all about You've set and plotted the course for the strategy of the game in which you're playing, and you're either participating or you're the coach, and you go out to run the race, so to speak, and as you begin the race, maybe it's going okay, but somewhere, some way, 
the athletes or you, depending on whether you're the coach or the participant, get off course from the strategy that you've plotted out. And what happens? What does the coach do? He calls time out. He interrupts the game, doesn't he? He interrupts the game and he brings them over. And what he does is he tries to put them back on course. And that's what the book of Jonah is all about, or one of the things that it's all about. Another thing that it's all about is that the Lord here is concerned about a hated people. And when you read about and think about the people of Nineveh, it's very tempting to do things like this. Oh my goodness, look how terrible those people are. And the Bible tells us in Jonah chapter 4 that the Lord pitied Nineveh. Well, actually, instead of that, I think what we should do is all jump up out of our seat and say, praise the Lord. And here's why. Because we're Ninevites. And of course, in the structure of the Bible, this would have been shocking to the Jewish people because, wow, the salvation is going to be available to non-Jewish people. But then on our side of the cross, we see ourselves in the Ninevites. Jesus told us this, that in our hearts lurks things that are the equivalent of murder. Maybe we've never murdered anybody, but we've hated people. Maybe we've never committed adultery in the sense that we haven't gone through the physical act, but we've lusted after people. And these things lurk there. And we're no better than the Ninevites. And the Lord has pity on the Ninevites. G. Campbell Morgan said this, God's anger with sin is born out of his pity for the sinner. God's anger with sin is born out of his pity for the sinner. And this book, watch, it just explodes with that. That God is just as interested with the, in, or with the uh, hated crowd as he is with the in crowd. Wow. Wow. You all are saying, well, that's, what's that such a big deal? Well, let me tell you something, folks. There's people that voted yesterday that didn't vote like you. And if, when I look out on Facebook, I see a world of Christians spewing hate. It's embarrassing. It's awful. It's terrible. Can you stand up for the people you want to... Uh, um, Vote for, of course. Should be informed citizen, yes. Can you promote another candidate? Of course. But hate? No way. I see a two-year thing of people who hated you if you wore a mask or hated you if you didn't wear a mask or hated you if you got a vaccine or hated you if you didn't get a vaccine. And I see people spewing hate over that. This book shatters that, man. God pities the ones who are hated. Wow. 
So I come back here and I see this man who had some success, whatever you define success as, as a prophet early in his ministry, but now he's running from the Lord because the Lord didn't do what he wanted him to do. Lord, I'm, for instance, say you're a musician. Lord, I'm a musician. Thank you for putting me in the worship band. And the Lord comes to you and through his word and through prayer and praise, he speaks to you and he says, I want you to go and I want you to start you know, I don't know, a ministry among the homeless. Well, what do we say oftentimes? Lord, I'm a musician. I'm not doing that. The Lord has something for you that's good and perfect and wonderful. The thing that he started in you, he's not going to uh, stop until he finishes it to completion, you see. And I want you to, I want to show you what the Lord's after in you before we progress into chapter two. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter four. I can't think of anywhere else in the Bible where it says it any better. It's in verse seven. It was the ladies theme this year at their conference, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. I'm not focusing on the earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side. Sound like Jonah? Uh, Yet not crushed. We are perplexed, yet not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now here it is, verse 10. Watch this. What is the Lord after in your life, in my life? I think he's after this. Ready? Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, watch, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. In other words, I think one of the things that the Lord is after for you right now is for you and I and we to die to self. When there are people who are willing to be servants, I'm not talking about a name, but indeed, and in, in, in the heart, being willing to die to themselves. Jesus calls you to pick up your cross daily and follow him. You want to be a follower of Jesus Christ? You take the death penalty. And you're never coming back. When you put the cross on your back, it's not like you say, oh, okay, yeah, I'm in, I'm out. You put it on your back and you're walking towards the place of death. You're always dying to self. Now, why am I saying all that? Because when you go back and examine Jonah, watch this. God says, I want you to go that way. He goes this way. And you know the story of why now he's up in the north and here he goes and it's easy and it's comfortable and he just sails off and he goes to sleep. But we know that sinning or being outside of the will of God just doesn't impact him. It impacts others too. But God will do everything to get you to turn around. So much so that the Bible here doesn't say that a storm came. It says that God cast the storm, same word as when Saul cast the spear at David, purposefully sent a storm and a vicious storm. And then purposely, the lots that they cast fell on Jonah. 
That's in verse 7 or 8 there, 7. And then the Lord, I love this, and this idea, prepared a fish. From the time that little guppy came out of its mommy until the time of Jonah, there was a purpose for that fish life. Fishes? Life. Is it fishes? Fish apostrophe. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but I want you to see something here. There's grace in what God has done. And if you don't see that, I want you to see that more than anything I want, I'm saying or thinking here tonight. I want you to think of the storm that almost upset the whole thing as grace. And I want you to think of going into the fish and being contained there and it feeling like hell. That's what he says. It felt like hell. And I want you to think of it as grace. And you're like, man, you're nuts. You see, but people in the American church have the complete wrong total idea of what grace is, and if you'll just remember this story, you'll never get it wrong again. Here's what everybody in America thinks grace is. Oh, if you mess up, what's it matter? You got grace. We use grace as an excuse to do what we want to do, and we know it deep down. Christians going around, living with people, when the Bible says clearly, don't do it. Or whatever. You could pick a million things. We just thumb our nose at God and said, we'll call upon his grace. See, that ain't grace at all. We have a skewed idea of what grace is. Grace isn't letting you do what you want to do. It's not that. In fact, Romans 1, do you remember this? Said God will give you over to your reprobate mind. If you read chapter 1 of Romans, the wrath of God is when God says, oh, you want to handle it yourself? Okay, I'll let you. That's not the grace of God letting you do anything you want to do. It's the wrath of God. God's grace helps and trains and puts you into his will. Do you have forgiveness when we make mistakes and sin? Of course. But that thing that we think about grace where we think it's just let me do what I do and then get some forgiveness. Paul said that's sheer stupidity. Nobody who is a child of God with a nature, uh, a new nature, would think that way. We would never trample the grace of God that way. Grace isn't letting you do what you want to do. Grace is this. God's transforming grace where he's training you and teaching you and bringing you into right relationship with you and bringing you into a godliness that is... So lovely and so wonderful, not mistake-free, by the way. Jonah's going to be mistake-free here at the end, or, or have some words still at the end of the book. But he brings you into this place, listen to this, where you can agree with God, now finally, you can quit fooling him about your fake Christianity and really commit and repent 
and leave it all with the Lord. And when he does that, boom, you get spit out onto the land, going the right way. That's grace. Aren't you tired of cheap grace and the way people teach it? I am. I mean, just read Titus. If you don't believe me, just read Titus. Grace is a transforming grace. The grace of God will take you when you're going the wrong way and shake you every which way to get you to back go and walk the right way. Grace takes you to the difficult path, not always the easy path with the open doors and the plenty of money. It goes to the places that are dangerous and dark because people out there are dying and the Lord pities them. That's grace. This book is powerful. And we haven't even got to chapter two yet. So the Lord in verse 17 of chapter one prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I wish you wouldn't get yourself all worked up about three days and three nights. If, if I did something on a Friday, uh, let's say I uh, exercise on a Friday, and I did it for about, I probably did it for a half hour on Friday, and then maybe I exercise for an hour on Saturday, and I exercise for two hours on Sunday. You know what I would say? I exercised Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You, you get what I'm saying? He was in the belly of the whale parts of three days. That's all that means. Don't get so hung up on it. I'll hear about that. But Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. It was a fish. It was a great fish. I don't know what kind of whale it is. Here's the problem when you think of Jonah this way. Everybody wants to think about what the fish was like and how many hours they were in the fish. And they miss it all. Because the miracle, listen, listen, the miracle's happening inside of Jonah. It's not because of some fish. You don't believe that the Lord could put somebody in a fish and carry him around for three days and spit him out, but you believe that God created the world out of nothing in seven days? Come on. He can do it, and he has done it. And I know he's done it because the Lord Jesus himself ratified this when he said, I'm going to give you a sign, Jewish people. Just look at Jonah. That's the sign. Three days in the belly of a whale. So, so, so this is an important book because, folks, when, there's going to be people out there, critics, cynics say there's no resurrection in the Old Testament. Oh, really? You ever read the book of Jonah? Here's the resurrection. This is the picture of the resurrection. In fact, some people believe Jonah died here. I like actually died. J. Vernon McGee believes that. I'm probably not in that camp, but whether he died or he didn't die, it was like hell to him. That's what he says here. So the Lord prepares a great fish to swallow Jonah. They're in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. But then Jonah prays to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly. Now, there's a big debate. When did he pray? Right when he got in there? Or because it says, then Jonah prayed, that means after the three days. So he waited three days. And pastors make a big deal about 
why would he wait three days? I mean, once you got in there and you were stuck and you were being bleached and ugh, the smells and the heat and the grossness and the vomit and the seaweed and all that sort of thing, wouldn't you started praying right away? No, he was so stubborn. He waited till after three days to begin praying. I don't know. All I know is at some point, Jonah prayed and he prayed to Yahweh. That's what it says. It says Yahweh. And the reason I say that is Yahweh is the name, listen, of the covenant Lord. When the names of God are used in the Old Testament and there's different names for God, you know, Jehovah Jireh, provider, Sid Canoe, our righteousness, you know this. In this one, he's using the name Yahweh or Jehovah. It was such a holy name that the Hebrew scribes wouldn't write out the vowels. They wouldn't write out Jehovah with the vowels so it looked like Yahweh, so they called the Lord Yahweh. But what he's saying here is, I'm depending on the one who keeps his promises, my dad. He's got to the place. Look, he's running from the Lord and I'm asking you, and I stopped uh, last time and asked you, what have you ran from the Lord from, or what are you running from? I told you what I did. Some of you, uh, I, 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 my wife says I'm TMI, but I don't know any other way. We were the babies of our family. We weren't financially responsible for a long time. Thank the Lord that that's improved, and we're okay in that area now. <laughs> But the point is, when something would come on the radio, and I'm a Christian, and I'd hear Dave Ramsey or something, I'm like, Get, turn that off. I ran. I ran from the Lord in that area. There's so many other things that I've run. What are you running from? What has God called you to do or asked you to do or said... Maybe it's ask for forgiveness or seek forgiveness, or maybe it's to give up your phone, or maybe it's, I don't know what it is, or there's a million things it could be, or maybe it's to start this ministry. I, I moved here, and I knew I was supposed to start a home fellowship, and I moved here in 1999, and for three years, I just said, no, I'm not doing it, Lord. I know nobody here. I don't know anybody here. And the Lord was so gracious and wonderful, but he still kept hitting my heart, and it took my dad dying to get it done. Now, I don't think he had my dad die as a penalty because I didn't do the Bible study. I don't think that. But through that shock and terrible time, I would say it's as I'm running away from the Lord when I moved here, I'm running away. I'm not doing a home fellowship. I'm not doing a home fellowship. No way I'm doing that. I got babies. I'm not doing that. I'm too busy. Too busy. Yeah, right. And then my dad dies. Boom. And we drive back from the funeral and we're just like, I go, I've been so disobedient. The time is so short. How could I do not do this? And we just started a Bible study. Never thought about opening a church, never even cared about opening a church. The Lord just told us to start the Bible study one step at a time. Just started a Bible study, 11 years, Bible study, no church. I didn't even think about a church. But then when the time was right, then he said, here, now I want you to proceed a little more. And I didn't want to do it. I was talking to some people tonight. Home fellowships are hard. If you love your house, if you love the things in your house, if you um, 
love and covet your personal time, do not do a home fellowship. (laughs) There are so many things that can go wrong in the human sense. You can get in a fight with your wife beforehand, not that we've ever done that. The house can be a wreck. The kids can be sick. Uh, nobody come. I mean, just a million things. And it's hard and it's difficult. We've had lamps busted, toys busted. I mean, brand new toys our kids have. Boom. Couches broken, two of them. One of those fans that go on your ceiling, crack. And I'm not telling you that to, to feel sorry for me. I'm saying... You got to know when the Lord calls you, but when you do, you got to turn and go. And the first thing you got to get in touch with, not first thing, the first thing that turns you around is prayer. You've got to decide in your mind that you're going to pray. Not that prayer. You know that prayer you do. Oh, Lord, bless the food. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, get me to work on time. Thank you so much. Will you bless everything I do today and give me lots of money? Thank you. That's not it. These are times where you're spending with the Lord and you're calling on your dad, who's the covenant maker, who's the one that keeps promises and you can depend on it. It's just you and him. And he wants to get you in that place of stillness without your stupid phone and without music and Netflix and all the things, just you and him. He just wants you to get in that stillness of time so that you'll glean from him and that he will come to you and there's be a sweetness to you that you could never have without him. And the only way sometimes he can do it is to trap you. It sounds terrible, but it's the greatest and best thing. And here he got him to the place where the death was inside, I mean, here, he was dying to self. All the prejudices, all the hatred, all the pompousness, because I've been in the courts of the kings. I'm a prophet. I've been called upon by the Lord. I've done this for 30 years. Who are you to tell me I can't do this anymore? All of that, all the uh, uh, haughtiness, the pride, everything, it's got to go. You're dying to self. And the only way, apparently, for Jonah was to get him into the belly of a whale or a fish a great fish, and to keep him there for three days and three nights, still just him and the Lord, where it was uncomfortable and stinky and gross, and he was preparing him, and he was speaking to him. And listen, it's amazing when you read through this prayer. You know why it's amazing? Because all of these prayers are taken from various Psalms. So it means that Jonah was a man of the word. He knew the word. He stored it up in his heart. And in John 14, in the 20 somewhere, it says that the Holy Spirit, we have an advantage when we hide the word in our heart, uh, because it's, it says that the, the Holy Spirit is there to teach you and to bring to remembrance the things that you already know. But in order to already know it, you got to know it the first time. So you got to put it in. And here, here he's doing it. In the times of trouble, listen to what Jonah did. He prays, he calls on his covenant God, specifically his dad, 
And then he prays and sings the scriptures to him as he's laying there. Just think about that miserableness of having to be still. And you're saying, yeah, that gives me claustrophobia. But we have social, emotional claustrophobia. We can't be still. We need to be flipping things and looking at things and seeing the news. And the Lord is just calling you to him so that you'll walk in the ways that he has for you and go to the places that he has for you. You see it? So he says, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. Finally, look at this. He gave up. There must have been this. Lord, you have no idea what you're doing. I'm a prophet of the king's courts. I'm not going to Nineveh. He's gone from that to it's my affliction. I own it. I just want you to know, folks, real repentance means you own it. We have a lot of people that say they're repentant and they ain't repentant at all because they never own it. They say things like this. Yeah, I was wrong, but here it comes. This is the word that you can always tell when they don't own it. But I was wrong, but you were a real jerk. That is not repentance. The but cancels it all out. Here he owns his affliction. He cried or he owns his sin. I cried out to the Lord. Why? Because I'm owning it. You're right, Lord. You have the best plan for me. Even if I'm in this stinky, smelly, hot, confined place, this crisis. And look, he answered me. Now to the belly of Sheol, that just means the place of the dead, I cried. This was like hell, folks, he's saying. And you heard my voice. You listened to me. I want you to see something here. This is a rebellious, pompous, running the other way from the Lord guy. But when he comes back, watch, when he owns it, as soon as he owns it, the Lord hears. The Lord's, oh, okay. Out of the belly of Sheol I cry, and the Lord heard my voice. Watch, for you, look at this. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. You know, keeping on that theme of the Lord turning or letting people over to their reprobate mind or let, taking his hands off the wheel, that's his wrath. I got to tell you something. As I look at society, especially parents, parents, Their kids are running the other way. And you know what they want to do when the Lord starts chastising them? The kids. They want to bail the kids out. Or people come to the pastor and say, if you could just help me get through this, you know, I won't do it anymore. Da, da, da. When in reality, the worst thing that we could do is bail people out because we're interfering with what the Lord is doing. Listen, people, he cast the guy into the deep. Not, it was a mistake and he sort of fell over. The Lord put him into the deep, into the water. The Lord put him into a fish. In American Christianity, you know what we say? Oh, that's so ungraceful. 
The Lord would say, no, it's completely graceful. I'm trying to get him to walk with me. And I'll do anything I can because he's in a dangerous spot. So I cast him into the deep, or he cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. That's straight from Psalm 42. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Watch this. Here's how you know he's repentant. You start to see the signals. I own my affliction now. Lord, you're right. You're completely right. There's no buts. It was me. You called me to this, and I ran. And I was pompous, and I was wrong, and it was wrong of me. And I've been cast out of your sight, and rightly so. But here's what I'm going to do, Lord. I'm going to look toward your temple again, which tells me something. Remember, he's from Galilee. Where's the temple? It's in the south. What did, he, what did a family have to do three times a year in order to worship in the temple? Travel from here to there, 65, 70 miles. He went to the temple. What was in the temple? The Shekinah glory. That's where the presence of the Lord was. That he did and worshiped according to the way in which they were required to worship. And he says, now, listen, I'm here in the belly of the whale. Lord, the only thing that can help me right here as I own my affliction is just to be in your presence. I know it. It's not a job. It's not a title. It's not uh, you giving me access to important people. You know what it is, Lord? It's just you. It's just you. It's just your presence. And I know it now. And I'm repenting of what I did. And I'm going to look again, which means I used to look and I stopped looking. But I'm going to look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Apparently, this great fish liked to eat seaweed. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. What does that mean? That means I went down to the the bottom of the places of the mountains. He's just saying, I went down to death. This was hell. That's what he's saying. By the way, this is a picture of Anybody who's outside of the Lord, that's where they're going, to hell. And it's a picture of people who are in rebellion to the Lord. They're making mistakes, and it could cost them their life. The earth with its bars closed. See, he's in prison behind me forever. There's, they're helpless. There's no hope. I want you to see something that's amazing. Jonah felt like and came to the realization that there was no hope for him, but watch. But that's just like the people of Nineveh. There's no hope. And you know when Jesus came and looked over Jerusalem and started weeping? Why was he weeping? Because his people, he knew that this people, this city, were going to deny him. And the Lord, I'm convinced, does that for any people or city. And here, look what it took. He wanted this guy to minister to the hated people. But before he did, look, look at this, as he ran away, God gave him a taste of what it was like to be isolated and hated and lonely and in crisis, just like the people who were without the Lord. 
Why do you think he did that? So that when he ultimately then would go to Nineveh, watch, there wouldn't be that bitterness or that edge on him like, yeah, I'm sharing with these people, but I don't really like them. He was giving him a heart that knew what it was like to be that way. You get it? Oh, man, one of the prayers that we should have, huh? Lord, when we're going to minister, help us to see people like you see people. Pity them in the right way. Wherever you send us. Well, he sends in there, you've brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, that's when I remember the Lord. I remember the Lord. I just ran out of all strength. Doesn't that, isn't that what the Lord wants us to do? Just empty ourselves of our self-strength. No, yes, we want to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, but not your own self. He wants to get rid of self. He wants to get rid of prejudice. He wants to get rid of hatred. He wants all of that out. He wants us to die to self. And when you come to that place, here's what you do. You remember the Lord. And when you remember the Lord, he strengthens you, I'm convinced. When you just stop striving in your own way, but ask him for the strength. Wow, that's the place to be. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Now, that is a direct reference or claim of a promise in 1 Kings 8, 38 through 40. That's a direct claim or promise of that scripture. And here's what it says in 1 Kings 8, 38 and 40. Whatever prayer, this is around the time of Solomon. Everybody remember who Solomon was? Whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people of Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart, when, when each person knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands towards the temple, then here in heaven, here with your ear, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways whose heart you know, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. This guy was a man of the word. And he references that First Kings 8, 38 prayer that Solomon made. Well, watch this. Those who regard worthless idols, this is one to remember, forsake their own mercy. Those who regard worthless idols, it actually means lying, like lying, not telling the truth, vanities. Do you know what a vanity is? It's something that appears to have substance, but has none. It can look beautiful on the outside, but there's nothing there. It's a lying vanity. Those who regard worthless idols, and folks, I don't know about you, one big idol in America is the idol of people pleasing. You want to people please so that people will like who? And which makes you your own idol. Now there could be a million idols here. There's work and wealth and image and all those things. But people who regard worthless idols, listen to this, forsake their own mercy. In other words, here's the... Uh, exegesis of that. Get rid of your idols. <laughs> That's a joke. But anyway, uh, what would be one of the prayers we would pray? Lord, reveal to us where I put anything above you, anything, anything 
Lord, and I want to knock it down and smash it. It's not that I can't have it or whatever. It's just that I don't want it to be higher than you. I don't want anything, a marriage, a job, a ministry, nothing higher than the Lord. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. That's right from a psalm, folks. Salvation is of the Lord. You see, here we go. Here's this man. He came back to the Lord, and the vehicle that the Lord used to deliver him was repentance. Got it? He's repenting. He gets into the belly of the whale, the crisis situation, and it's not fake. It's not phony. There's something that's happened in his heart where he owns it. He quits blaming other people. He quits saying, anyway, he quits blaming other people, and he, and he says, I'm going to just look to the Lord. I'm going to sacrifice to the Lord. I'm going to give thanksgiving to the Lord. Can you imagine saying, Lord, thank you for putting me in a whale? And yet that's what he's saying here. He's saying, I never would have come back to you if you wouldn't have put me here. If you wouldn't have put me into the ocean. If you wouldn't have come after me and shook the, the boat and the sea and the storm and put me in a whale. Lord, I am so thankful for that whale. That's what he's saying. And I want you to think about some of the times that the Lord has called a timeout in your life. Because he knew you were walking the wrong way. When you come out the other side and you start working, or you start walking in the way that he has for you, are you able to say, thank you for the whale, the fish, the hellish experience? I'm not happy about all the circumstances, I think it's okay to say, but Lord, what you taught me in there was so grand and glorious, I would have done it again. I don't want to do it again, but what you did and what you produced, man, I could never have done it without that. Can you get to that place? Well, Jonah did, and he was repentant. And he goes, I'll pay what I vowed. Salvation of the Lord is of the Lord. Not only salvation to be in the family of God, saved from your sins, but look, you have salvation over the power of sin, folks. That's what the Bible tells you happened at the cross and resurrection. Your sins have been paid for, but the power over you by the sin, you now don't have to do it anymore. The power has been taken away. So don't say, I sort of fell into sin. No, you didn't. You walked into it. You did it. But then I was last thing I want you to see. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Two things here I want you to, man, if you catch this, it's going to revolutionize your trials. You know, when he's in the belly, and he, whenever he started praying, first day, second day, I don't know, third day, whatever, even when the fish was moving, I bet you he didn't know the fish was moving. You get what I'm saying? I mean, he might have been able to feel some wiggle and stuff, but he had no idea what direction the fish was going. But I want you to see this. If he's going to Tarshish, and he's in the middle of the ocean, and he falls in there, at some point, as he repents, 
and owns it. He owns it. No more buts, no more excuses. It's me, and I'm a sinner, and I want to die to self, and help me, Lord, because I can't help myself. When he got to that place, watch this, the fish started going to the land. You get it? Even if he didn't know it was going to the land. Isn't that how it is in trials? You're like, am I ever going to get out of these circumstances? And all the time that you're praising the Lord and owning your own things in it and, and understanding what the Lord wants to do, die to self, and he's propping up your faith because that's more precious than gold, it tells us in First Peter. As he's doing all these things in you, you don't even know it, and you're close to land. But when you come out, look, he spits you out, he sticks you back onto the purpose for which he intended, and that's redemption, by the way. Coupon. Watch this. There are some accounts that the acid and all this sort of thing, the acid and all this sort of thing would have bleached the guy, which means he was marked. He was marked by the trial. So that as he's moving in the ways that the Lord has called him to move, he has the scar or whatever it is. Sort of like the limp with Jacob, you see. To always remind him what of God's grace. <laughs> Incredible. So let's pray, and I want us to ask each other, and maybe before you leave, you just get with one person. And here's what the Bible says, you know, confess our sins one to another. I'm not saying it's sin, but is there something the Lord's called you to that you've disobeyed? Is there something the Lord's called me to that I've disobeyed? Been many of those things. I want you to just say it to your friend and say, I want you to pray for me to help me to move over in that or move on in that thing. All right, I'm holding you to it. Let's pray. <laughs> well, Lord, I th thank you so much for this powerful word. And I thank you for this book that's so amazing that shows us the resurrection and what resurrection life is all about. Lord, we're the most to be pitied. And yet, as we've been through some of these things and we've felt these things, Lord, you're prepping us and preparing us for a deeper walk with you and then spitting us out, marked in a sense, to go on our way serving the lost and the lonely and the hated. Lord, help us to do that. Make this not a game or a lifestyle of Christianity, but make it so that many would come to know you before you come back, because you surely are coming back soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.